0: As we look over the span of history, we recognize that there are many throughout history who maybe come to our mind who have left a legacy, perhaps figures of history whom we've never met or don't even know. Perhaps there's individuals in your life who've had a lasting impact on your life. Though they may be distant in the past, you remind them. We consider negative legacies like that of Stalin and Hitler or even Bin Laden. Or perhaps we can stretch further into history and we consider the legacies of Alexander the Great, Muhammad, or King Henry VIII. Men and women who have had a lasting impact upon the world in which we know today. We don't even recognize the impact they've had. There's been many who have left their mark on history. Their names are in the history books. There are countless others who have contributed to the history of the world in which we live today who we don't know, men and women, whose names go unnoticed and unrecorded. Their impact may be great, but their names remain unknown, and their contribution even unrecognized. Now, while there may be those whom you know their names and you know their impact, This morning we want to consider how you and I can leave a legacy that's not so much concerned about our name, but about God's glory. How we might have a legacy of our own, both in our lives as God's people, our impact on our families and our friends, but also an impact on the kingdom of Christ. We're going to consider in God's word this morning a story of a woman, an unnamed woman in Mark's gospel who left a lasting legacy. Someone whom even today, if you consider for a moment, it's been 2,000 years, give or take a few years, since this woman, this unnamed woman we're going to read about this morning, performed this act. And the fulfillment of Jesus' words are true today. That is, that He says, wherever the gospel is preached, the story of this woman will be heard. Well, friends, you're fulfilling that this morning. You're going to be hearing about this woman, just as Jesus said would happen. And it will continue to be told into the future. An unnamed woman who gave her all for the glory of Christ Jesus. Let's read together in Mark's gospel. I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14. If you're joining with us this morning and maybe you've been visiting with us and we've been elsewhere the last few weeks, uh, this morning we're going to return to Mark's gospel. And, uh, over the next few weeks, uh, we're going to conclude, uh, Lord willing, the gospel of Mark. And we're going to culminate this letter on resurrection Sunday. And so, uh, Over the next few weeks, we're going to be kind of building to the resurrection in Mark's gospel and then conclude the the letter, uh, the gospel, on that Sunday. And so I'm excited just to see these passages and to consider them as we're people, God's people together. Mark chapter 14, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. You will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him, him to them. And when they had heard it, they were glad promised to give him money and he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Well as we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark we have kind of picked up a stylistic way in which Mark writes. If you were to sort of pay attention as you read through the Gospel of Mark he arranges the material in a certain way in order to highlight what he wants you to really focus on. Uh, He kind of puts a highlighter on the words, and he wants you to think intentionally about certain words. That's not to say that other stories contained within the gospel are unimportant, but rather he arranges the letter in such a way as to highlight certain things or certain aspects about the ministry of Jesus in order to teach the people he's writing to about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And this passage is really about that second question, about what it means to follow Jesus. What Mark is doing through this arrangement, I'll show you what that arrangement is here in a moment, is trying to emphasize for his readers. Remember, he's writing to Christians, living in Rome in the first century. So first and foremost, Mark is compiling all of this information about the life of ministry death and resurrection of Jesus in order to teach the church in Rome how to faithfully glorify Jesus and also how to follow him. And so we want to think about that as we then bridge to ourselves in the 21st century and thinking about well what does this really mean for us together as God's people? So what is the stylistic thing that Mark does? Well in typical fashion Mark organizes the story into a sandwich. You know like you eat, right? And when you make a sandwich you have two slices of bread And then you have something in the middle. And for Mark, what he wants you to think really hard about is what's in the middle. And then think about what's in the middle in light of what's on the outside or the bread, if you will. So look with me. Just if you have your Bibles open, uh, you'll notice the the slices of bread. Verses 1 and 2 are the top piece. Then the middle, the the sort of meat in the middle of the sandwich, is verses 3 through 9. And then that final layer, that final piece of bread is verses 10 and 11. That is, Mark has arranged this in such such a way as to heighten for us this this radical devotion, this this seemingly extravagant gift that this woman gives as a way to contrast, well, the high priest and Judas, men who were driven by hatred and, and evil. And then to consider for ourselves as God's people, this beautiful picture he is contrasting this radical devotion of an unnamed woman and the hatred of those around him. We want to see them in this passage. That's the point. We want to see first, we want to kind of consider kind of two main points. We're going to kind of organize this the way Mark organized it. We're going to think about it in two ways. First. The evil, the sort of evil folks that, 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 that are on both sides of the story. And then consider that middle piece. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. So what's the point of the passage? What is the point that Mark is driving at? And what I hope to be the point of the sermon is this. True followers of Jesus, true followers of Jesus, leave a lasting legacy through radical devotion and sacrificial acts of worship. Okay. So so we want to understand that what it means to follow Jesus is to leave a lasting kingdom impact through radical devotion and sacrificial acts of worship. And so the overarching question we have sort of for us is what kind of legacy are we going to leave? Where is our focus? What what legacy are we leaving? Is it an eternal legacy or an earthly one? That's what we want to consider as God's people. So let's consider first, the extreme hatred of Jesus' enemies. The extreme hatred of Jesus' enemies. Now, the timing is everything in the Gospel of Mark, and it helps us understand what's really going on here. So, if you look with me at verse 1 in chapter 14, Mark writes, It, is, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Two days before the Passover. Now what we want to understand is what Mark is doing in this passage. Is kind of acting as a prologue to the passion narrative. This is going to set the stage for everything that is about to follow in the narrative. Jesus, or Mark, is preparing us for the death of Christ. He's preparing us for the sacrifice that Christ is going to give on the behalf of sinners. And so Mark is introducing, us, setting the scene, if you will, two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, the Passover was a a central time in the life of God's people. We considered it last week in the sermon about the gospel. It was a time in which God's people celebrated his deliverance from their sin, uh, most assuredly from their deliverance from slavery. So the Passover was celebrated by the Israelites first when the night before God delivered them from their captivity in Israel, uh, in Egypt. And Israel was sent out then, and we understand that the story was a showing us the kind of radical, the kind of devotion that God had for his people, and to provide the sacrificial lamb. And so the spotless lamb then was sacrificed at noon and then eaten in the evening. And so God's people would celebrate that. And so it was a time in which the, 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 the city swelled with people. Over a million people would, would march into the city during this week, and it would just swell exorbitantly during this time. Also, Mark tells us that it was the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a, a separate festival or feast that, that kind of coincided with the Passover. It was a time in which they celebrated God's provision there in their escape from slavery, how God had provided them, a, uh, provided everything they needed. And the imagery here just sort of evokes a sense of urgency and trust in the Lord. Now, I want you to think about this. It was a time of celebration, a time of joy, a time of happiness, uh, really a time of excitement among the people of God. I want you to notice what the religious leaders are doing. Look at what they're doing. They are scheming to kill Jesus. Rather than focusing on giving God glory, rather than giving themselves uh, to, to worshiping God and celebrating what God has given them, They are scheming to kill Jesus. They are trying to come up with ways to kill Jesus. And the irony in this passage is astonishing. It's astonishing. Did you see it? Mark picks up here this again, this this fact that we've seen since the very beginning, that the religious leaders will stop at nothing to see Jesus dead. But from chapter 2, or really the end of chapter 1, all the way to the present and on down through, we understand that the religious leaders have sort of a hunger, a jealousy, a hatred of Jesus that is so deep-seated that they will stop at nothing to see him die. They want to see him dead. And it reminds us of this, in this passage that Jesus was innocent, that he had done nothing wrong to warrant such attention. He really hadn't done nothing, and so when we consider in a couple of weeks when Jesus is before the council, uh, the Jerusalem count, or before the council of, of uh, high priests there and the elders, uh, they're kind of have to drum up charges on Jesus. They they bring in false witnesses, and the false witness can't even get the story straight, right? They, they they can't get the story straight, and so these men will stop at nothing. Mark tells us that they were they're trying to do it by stealth or. Or in other translations, cunning ways. They, they were trying to come up with some clever way to capture Jesus, to trap Jesus. The language that Mark is using here is the language of a hunter and a prey. Jesus was their prey, and they were seeking ways to entrap him. Their desire was to see Jesus eradicated from the landscape. They didn't want his teaching going on anymore. And it's so funny to see the irony is so thick again that what they sought to do in fact the thing God used to bring glory and honor and praise to Jesus. In fact, Mark tells us that they didn't want to do it during the feast. They didn't want to do it during the feast because they knew that it would cause a riot. They knew it would cause a problem. They they knew Jesus was popular. Jesus had a lot of followers. People that maybe weren't true disciples, but at least people who liked Jesus. Fascinatingly enough, it was at the very pinnacle of the Passover when Jesus died. It was right there at noon when the the Passover lamb was slain that Jesus died. I want you to consider for a moment again what their minds were occupied with. What they were focusing on. What they were giving themselves in. They cared more about their own vainglory and their power than they did about just giving a thought or consideration to who Jesus actually was. They were blinded by their sin. Rather than giving themselves the responsibilities that God had given them to shepherd the people, they advocated that so that they could zealously pursue the death of Jesus and ultimately kill him. But the irony is so clear. They were the ones who were responsible for killing the Passover lamb? They were the ones God had appointed to killing the Passover lamb, and in striking fashion, they were the ones who would give the call to kill, kill the true Lamb of God, the one whom that Passover lamb pointed, Jesus. The one whom John declared, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ. They were the ones who ultimately killed Jesus. The point is clear in this passage. God was the one who was orchestrating this whole thing. God was bringing this to his glorious ends. Though they wanted to keep it secret, God would display it. So that no one could doubt what Jesus' death meant. And he died precisely at 12 noon when that lamb's. Though it was clear that the Lamb of God had come in Jesus Christ. But we see here also in this passage that the betrayal by the religious leaders doesn't stop with them, in fact, it goes much deeper and far reaching. If you were to consider an overarching theme in chapter 14, it would be betrayal. Notice with me just sort of that theme quickly. Verses 10 through 11, we consider the betrayal of Judas. And then as we move into the next section, into the the institution of the the Lord's Supper, we see Jesus declaring that that someone will betray him. And then we see Jesus says that, that Peter will betray him. And then Jesus even builds bigger as he goes throughout that. He says that all will fall away in verse 29. Peter Peter says that even though all fall away, I will not. And then as he continues on, he says, look, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee. And so this passage is steeped in that sort of betrayal among those who are closest to him. Now I want you to notice what Mark says, verse 10. Look at verse 10, the other side of the sandwich. Let's consider this other enemy, this far-reaching. Look at Judas. Notice what Mark says. Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve. Mark wants us to be reminded that Judas was close to Jesus. Really, of any of the people that were following Jesus, it was the twelve, right, that had the closest proximity to Jesus. Jesus literally ate, slept, and breathed with the disciples. It wasn't like church today, you know, where you just kind of see everybody once a week. No, they like lived together for three years. There was a sense of intimacy among the twelve as they lived together, as they shared meals together, as they wept together, as they cried and prayed together, as they considered and taught, as they heard. Judas was there to hear everything Jesus had to say. And what a warning to us. That mere proximity to the things of God does not guarantee faithfulness. Does not guarantee. No, Judas was not one outside. Judas was an insider. Judas was one inside the camp. And yet he was the one who was to betray. And look at what he does. He betrays Jesus here for money. Matthew tells us that he betrayed Jesus for 60 pieces of silver. The cost in the Old Testament of an ox, if it died. Jesus was worth about three months worth of work. In our day, maybe about $7,500. That was the price of Jesus. It tells us, one, Judas's view of Jesus, but also the view of the high priest, how much they really thought Jesus was worth. To them, he was worthless. Notice also in verse 11, he's struck by these words, the evil, and when they heard it, that is the betrayal of Judas, that he was going to betray, they were glad. Just allow that to sink in for a moment as you consider the depth of evil. They were glad. What they celebrated then was, and finally, they would capture their prey. They were glad. Oh, the depth of human wickedness and sin. We see it clearly in this passage. Jesus would be betrayed by a few dollars. And what we see, most assuredly, when we consider legacy is that the chief priests and the scribes have a lasting legacy, do they not? We're talking about them this morning. Two thousand years after the fact, we're still talking about these guys. I mean you could go in society today and speak to a non-Christian and they would have some sort of category for Judas. They may not know assuredly the whole story about Judas, but they would have we have idioms to talk about Judas. Right? Judas's. Right? When we say someone's a Judas, we mean that they're a betrayer. Right? We use that in our language. And so Judas even himself has this lasting legacy in our own culture. An image of betrayal. Being stabbed in the back. Friends, all of this is to warn us and to place in contrast what we're about to consider and the beauty that we're about to see. We see such darkness surrounding this passage. Such evil. such darkness. It's at night. Under the cover of night that they will trap Jesus. It is in the eve that they conspire to kill Jesus. Oh, it's not in the daylight, as Jesus says. Look, I was in the temple. I was in the temple teaching, but you didn't arrest me there. Oh, it picks up a theme that Mark has, that darkness, that evil happens at night. So let's consider then this extravagant, this extravagant devotion of Jesus' father. Let's consider this story again. I'm going to read it just for the sake of hearing this beautiful story. Verse 3, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and he was reclining at, at the table, just imagine this in your mind, paint this in your mind, a woman came, with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the boy. They scolded. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in every her. Mark tells us the setting is in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Now, I'm going to take Mark's... Passage. I'm not going to consider so much of what Matthew and John. So if you want to consider Matthew, you can go to Matthew. You can look at John. It has a similar has a sort of story told there. Luke has a similar but not same story told in his gospel. I think it was unrelated to this. It's a, something else that happened. So, But of the synoptic gospels, Mark and Matthew have the story, and it's really very similar. And Mark and Matthew leave her unnamed. That is, John tells us that this is Mary the sister of Martha, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. I think there's a reason why Mark leaves her unnamed. The reason is, is he doesn't want us to be enamored with names. He doesn't want to remember her name. He wants us to remember what she did. What she did. So what matters most here is not who did it, but what was done. That is what we want to give ourselves to is to think about this radical sacrificial worship. We're told that Jesus is, is there at the table, perhaps maybe prior to a meal or after a meal. We're not quite sure. He's reclining at the table. It was the custom in that time to sit, kind of recline back on one arm as you ate. They didn't have chairs. Um, the tables were low to the ground, and that's how they ate. And And we're told that Jesus is there being hosted by Simon the leper. Now, I'm not going to spend time with this, but I want you to consider something here. uh, uh, Something who Jesus is, is chilling with, who Jesus hangs out with, who Jesus has, who his friends are. The Simon the leper? And he's in the leper's house eating? Now, most assuredly, that this man is well known, perhaps even by the church in Rome, as Mark includes this information. Simon the leper, maybe he was somebody that the folks there in Rome knew about. But, but he, he was a leper. Now, most likely he wasn't a leper at that point, but rather was a leper in the past. That is, Jesus healed him. And Jesus has healed this, this leper. We don't really know why or what, what the circumstances were in the healing, but we know he healed him. It's amazing to consider the folks that Jesus hung around. That is, he hung out with those that were on the outside. Even as you could consider today, someone that may have some sort of communicable disease, even in our society of you know cleanliness and you know making sure germs aren't passed, we do have a sense of distance around those who maybe have certain things. You know, we 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 keep our hands in our pockets when maybe we're around someone like that has that. But here, Jesus knows assuredly this man is healed, and he w- is welcomed into his home, and he he eats meals with him again, just points to the fact that Jesus was a friend of sinners and outcasts. In fact, that's a theme throughout this section. This unnamed woman and Simon the leper, folks on the outside of society are the ones who are really the insiders. The ones who are invited into the kingdom of God. Aren't those that are there sitting in Jerusalem on thrones, but rather those that are weak and unnoticed by society. And so what we see is an unnamed woman coming in. Mark tells us that she's carrying an alabaster flask, which just, and it's terrible, but what he means is an alabaster jar. It's this little jar made of perhaps this sort of alabaster. He comes in, and and, and, and this woman comes in with this. We're told by Mark it's filled with a very expensive perfume perfume is a better translation of this. I think it communicates just a little bit better what it is. Ointments in, a, in our culture tend to have sort of a negative connotation you know like you put ointment you know it's like negative right uh, ointment. So perfume right that sounds that, that sounds a little pot more positive right And so the Holman Christian, the NIV other modern translations translated as as perfume and, and rightly so it, it was a perfume. It was it was it was made from an essential oil it was an oil that was produced and it was very costly we're told notice what he says there in verse three Uh, she came in uh, with this perfume of pure nard very costly very costly many scholars believe that this would have been maybe perhaps a dowry something that would have been passed on from this mother's uh, from this woman's mother to her Uh, it would have Cost a lot, as we are told here in this passage. It would have been something that was important to her—a family heirloom, something that wasn't just, you know, sitting on the shelf collecting dust, but something that was treasured in her heart. This wasn't just some insignificant thing. This was something that took thought and and intentionality to do. It wasn't something I don't think that this woman swiftly did. Something that she just just kind of said, "Hey, let's do this tonight. That seems like a good idea." No, but rather we see some intentionality here in this passage. She came with the flask. That is, she wasn't there. She had to come with it. She she prepared to go to do this. She had some intentionality in what she was doing. She knew what she was about to do. She had thought through this devotion that she was going to show. And we call it devotion. We call it this sort of radical, extravagant gift because it was so costly. In fact, the disciples tell us in this passage that it was worth 300 denarii, which, if you look at your footnote, is, is about a year's wages for an average worker, which in our day maybe be $45,000, 50000 Just think about that for a moment in your own life. If you were to go to your bank and cash out $50,000 and just throw it away in one night. Or maybe some precious Heirloom that you have. Something that's been passed down for generation to generation. Something that perhaps you couldn't even put a price on if you thought about it. And you were to give it away. Give it away. This is what this woman is doing. And it's beautiful, it's selfless. She gives everything. This would have been her livelihood. Now, remember, this is a culture not like ours. So don't just sort of read back into the story and say, like, ah, this woman would have been good. She'd have been fine. This would have been no good. She could have got a job down at McDonald's. She'd have been all right. The truth of the matter is, is that that's not the case in this culture. In the culture of the Bible in the first century, a woman would have been vulnerable without such a a pricely heirloom. That is, that would have been something that she could have bartered with and would have provided for her needs had she maybe not been married. Or perhaps someone in her family was not there to provide for her. So we understand that this was not just some passing thing, but this would have impacted her for the rest of her life. This was meaningful. This mattered. It was selfless. She gave everything. She's not unlike the woman we considered a few weeks ago. The woman, that poor widow who gave all that she could. Now, I think we want to understand, I think Mark wants us to understand, these women are these women are similar. These women are alike. Is that they counted the cost of following Jesus? And they recognized in the words of the writer of Hebrews that the fleeting pleasures of this world were nothing in comparison to the glories of Christ Jesus. Oh no, Her heart rested more in another kingdom than the safety and security that this world could afford her. She was willing to lay it all out for the sake of Christ. And in typical fashion, we see the disciples fumble the ball. In typical fashion, we see the disciples fumble this again and again all throughout the gospel we've seen it. And in typical fashion, we see it again. For there were some who said to themselves indignantly. Now Mark doesn't name them; he's a little bit more generous and gracious with the disciples in this particular passage. Mark or Matthew, uh, on the other hand, names them. In the fact, he names himself. It was one. Of, it was us. It was the disciples. Matthew says that complained, that became indignant. John is really only pinpoints on one individual. He he throws Judas under the bus. He says, "No, it was just Judas." And perhaps most likely it was Judas who led the charge or led the group to, you know, to scold the woman. It was Judas who ultimately, because of his greed, but we see the disciples are taken in by Judas' worldview, by Judas's philosophy. Mark tells us that they became indignant, that they were they were mad, they were furious. Why? What was it that made them so mad? What was it that, that made them so indignant? What was it? Mark tells us that it was because they wasted it. Well, friends, I, I mean, this week as I was thinking about this, I was, it was, in, Mar- I was in Matthew and I was in Mark. And, and Matthew Matthew just says, why the waste? Why the waste? Just meditate on that word for a moment. Waste. We, we have a lot of waste around us, right? In government, we talk about wasteful spending, right? But we talk about maybe how, in our own personal budgets, we waste money, right? Oh wasted money going out to eat when we could have just went to the grocery store and bought it for a lot cheaper. We waste, you know, our time. We waste. Waste we also use to refer to what? Our trash. Things we throw out, right? Things that have no value. Things that really aren't unimportant. What the disciples are saying That any gift given to Jesus Is waste It's trash Garbage Why did you waste it they said Why did you waste it Now they didn't think about this for a moment What was in their minds What they were thinking about What their values were And, And we can read this passage And we can kind of think like You know what the disciples were kind of noble they were the ones that were, I mean, they care about the poor people. They care about the poor. They want to see the poor fed. Well, what's so wrong with that? What's well, so what's the big deal? They, they care about poor, the poor and the needy. And that's true, and that's good, and the Bible speaks about our need to care for the poor. It's so true of that. And in, in particular, during this time in the Passover, it was a time in which almsgiving was at its height. In fact, you went to Jerusalem for the very sake of also giving alms, that is, giving offerings to the temple. To support the poor. What we see here is a radical, radical view of selfish waste. They cared more about themselves than they did, and they did Jesus. John tells us the motive of Judas was because he loved money. He lusted for money. He desired money. And and perhaps that was the motive of the other disciples. They they loved to have money. They wanted the money. They were greedy. Perhaps they wanted the money so they could give to the poor, only so they could be recognized as ones who had given to the poor. Like, hey, look what we did. We sold that bottle, and and we, you know. What we see here is something so beautiful. Nothing is ever wasted on Jesus. Nothing is ever wasted on Jesus. Do you see that? That's what Jesus says in verses six through nine. Jesus says, "Leave her alone. Get get away from her. Get out of here. Go. Stop bothering her. Why are you bother? Why are you troubling? Her? Why are you why are you giving her a hard time? I mean, you can you imagine Jesus is like covered in oil?" <laughs> This is amazing. What what, what am I not getting, disciples? What what's the disconnect? What she's doing is a beautiful thing, Jesus says. This is this is a noble act. This is a wonderfully beautiful thing. What what do you mean that you're you're scolding her, you're yelling at her, you're screaming at her, you're making her feel like that her. What are you doing? Jesus says, This is so beautiful, this is so lovely. trouble her, he says. Then Jesus gives us in verses seven and eight the reason why what she did was not wrong. Jesus says, "Look, you're always going to have the poor with." You. And again, we might take this passage as, as kind of like, "Man, Jesus kind of self, self-centered. Like he thinks he's all that." And and like you know, what about the poor people? I mean, you know, what Jesus is saying is, "Look, because of sin and the fallenness of human of humanity." There will never be a utopian society. We need to really settle in that for a second. There will never be a civilization in this world that does not have poverty. Because of sinfulness and human depravity, we will continue to live with those impoverished around us. Now, does that mean we we do nothing about it? We just kind of say... You know, oh, yeah, it's always going to be and so we don't do anything about it. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that, look, there is a time to worship me and there's a time to give radical devotion or excuse me, radical giving to those around you. There's a time to love God and love your neighbor. And what he's saying is right now, because of the uniqueness of my coming, that is, I'm here. This is going to be temporary. I'm only here for 30 some odd years and then I'm out of here. And then I'm going to come again. And in between that period of when I ascend and when I return, you can give yourself to the poor. You can care for them and love them and and help them. But right now, what you need to be focusing on is me. Okay? And so there is a sense of temporariness in that. So we don't want to read this and kind of say, oh, Jesus said, you know, we don't need to worry about the poor. He said, oh, we just need to give ourselves to him and. And, and worship him and, and we need to do radical acts of devotion for Christ and not concerned about things, this, you know, the, the, the poverty of this world. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that you need to give glory to God, but also care for those around you. That's what he's saying. And so some churches, and, and, and we may be tempted to one extreme or the other. That is, we could be tempted just to do, you know, social gospel stuff, you know, just, just caring for poor, caring for education, caring for, you know, the needs of this world. At the neglect of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the neglect of worship, the neglect of giving God glory and praise in the local church. But I feel among us conservative folks, Southern Baptists, we tend to get over here at the neglect of social gospels matter. That is what we do typically is we folk, we want to be gospel-centered, we want to, you know, love, love Jesus and love, you know, worship, we want to get together as God's people at the neglect of caring for the society around us, the community around us. And so we want to be in the middle. We want to have a balance. And I, I think that's just sort of we'd leave it there. We want to have a balance here for the poor and the kingdom of God. But then we see something quite striking here that Jesus says in response to this woman's actions. In verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. As you consider that, you can think like, who does that? What do you mean, Jesus? Who does that? And this is what I mean. Who gets their body ready for the grave before they're dead? Who does that? And, and what we understand is that in this culture, what they would do, they didn't embalm their, their, their dead. What they would do is they would cover them up with perfume, basically. They would make them smell really good when they were rotting. And so that it, the, 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 the smell of the rotting corpses would be sort of, you know, walked away by the, this pungent perfume. And as we consider then, what Jesus is saying is, again, another prediction of his own death. Jesus is pointing or foreshadowing to the death that is to come. The gospel here is so clear in this passage. What this woman did, Jesus will ultimately do on the cross. Where where this woman gave everything she had for the sake of Christ, so Jesus will give all he has for the sake of his people. He will give everything for for the glory of his people. And Jesus concludes then in verse 9 with this lasting legacy that this woman will have. Jesus says that wherever the gospel is told, the story of this woman will be told. People will be talking about what she did until I return. Oh, it's so beautiful to see, one, Jesus says that the gospel is going to be proclaimed in the whole world. What a promise that is, isn't it? Jesus anticipates that the gospel is going to go everywhere. And that every time that gospel is shared, people are going to be talking about what this woman did, the legacy that she left. So, friends, as we consider this passage, I think it's clear. I, I don't think we need to sort of exegete it so much that you miss the point. That is, that God calls his followers to the same level of radical, extravagant devotion. As God's people, we want to think about ways that we can give our all to follow Jesus. As we heard in the call to worship, we understand that following Jesus is costly. That it costs us everything. It's not one foot in this world and one foot in the kingdom of God. It's, it's all or, or nothing. We either go all in on Jesus or we go none in on Jesus. There's no middle line. Now, you may perceive yourself to be towing the line. That is, you may perceive yourself to sort of dabble in the world, but be in the kingdom. But the reality is, that is not what the Bible says is a true follower of Jesus. No, a true follower of Jesus is one who radically gives themselves for his glory. That is, their investments, where they're they're vested, is not in this world, but in the other world to come. So how then can we do that? How, how could perhaps sort of, we just kind of narrowed this down, how, how could a mom or dad or a single mom or single dad who's struggling, you know, just to get through life? How, how's a grandma or grandfather who, who's just trying to teach their kids something about their grandchildren? How, how do we do this? How, how do we leave a lasting legacy? Friends, I think it's through these radical acts of devotion. And really there is no legacy greater to leave than the gospel legacy that you can leave by following Christ's faith. I think it begins there. I think as you radically follow Jesus and you demonstrate, you live that out, not for your own glory, but just to show your devotion to Christ. You, you perhaps pray publicly and often you teach and discipline through the lens of the gospel. This goes so far in our lives as we consider how we minister to those around us. The kind of legacies we leave. Is it really all about us? This woman was, I'm sure, happy. I'm sure Mary was happy not to have her name. Not to be the one whom people said, Oh, I want to be like Mary. But rather, I want to do what Mary did. That's what. We may give ourselves to this world to pursue the things of this world. We may long and lust for success and popularity we may care more about our money than the gospel but the call that Christ gives in this passage is a radical devotion to him a radical sacrifice for his glory how do we as God's people as we gather together how do we build a lasting kingdom a lasting legacy I think it's through guarding the gospel by guarding the gospel through committed covenant Church membership whereby we serve one another in meaningful ways. Where we are known and where we celebrate others not so much to put them on a pedestal. But rather we celebrate the radical acts of love that they demonstrate. Motivated by a self not by selfish gain, but by the glory of Christ. That we want to be known more for what we do than who we are. That we care more about the deeds of love, than getting recognition for it. We care more about showing hospitality than receiving hospitality. We come here every week not as consumers, but as producers. Producers of love, producers of mercy, producers of grace, producers of hospitality. We're not here just eating up everybody's stuff. We're here glory of Christ Jesus and for his greatness. Heavenly Father, we give you the praise and glory today. Father, we pray that a better sermon is heard than the one preached, that is my earnest desire, Father. Oh, Father, that you would affect our soul through the word that has been preached, through your words, not mine. Father, my prayer is that everyone would forget what I've said and that only you would be remembered. Father, we give you the praise and glory in Christ Jesus' name.